Well, hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, uh, by show of hands, who, uh, who's, who's new to like the equipping ministry or training day? Anybody? All right. Hey, great. Welcome. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, by way of introduction, my name is Nathan, and I serve on, on the staff here at Watermark. I, uh, I lead the apologetics ministry and oversee the equipped disciple ministry. Any equipped disciple people in here? All right. There's always at least a handful. Um, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then I do stuff like this, right? So I'm, I'm really excited to be with you guys this morning. And then uh, you guys also have a distinct privilege um, to also hear from um, one of my best friends, Duke Rivard. Um, Duke and I met each other uh, in, at Dallas Seminary, actually, back in 2002, and uh, are both from Arkansas. Go Hogs, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And uh, so they got Georgia today, so y'all be praying that the Hogs will upset Georgia. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, we met at Dallas Seminary and, and uh, just immediately uh, linked up together. And then once we, once we graduated from DTS, Duke went off and planted a church in Portland, Oregon. So a little bit of culture shock there. Um, and, and also, since he's moved back here last year, a, a lot of reverse culture shock <laughs> back into the uh, wild of Dallas, right? And uh, so when he did that, I, I went off and uh, joined the Army, actually. And uh, we both moved back to Dallas within a week of each other last year, which was crazy. Um, but we've just been really good friends for a long time. And Duke also has, uh, when, I, when I think of people who I go to for discernment and insight and wisdom, he's typically toward the top of that list. So you guys are really privileged to be able to have him um, here with us this morning. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about us. And uh, we'll, we'll just jump right into it. There's, this is going to feel, hopefully not feel crazy overwhelming to you, but we are going to move through quite a bit of information this morning. So we'll, we'll go until about 10.45, 10.50, and then we'll take a break. All right. So there's a, for you short term, you know, hey, all right, I can make it to 10.45. <laughs> That's when we'll break. All right. And uh, we'll, we'll do about a 10 minute break to let you use the restroom and, and, uh, and uh, restock your uh, Krispy Kreme donuts <laughs> and, and uh, hopefully not have a sugar crash from that. And then come back in, and we'll go from around um, we'll go from around ten fifty or so uh, to uh, to noon, and then we'll we'll stop promptly at twelve, and you can go do soccer with the kids or football or whatever you do on a Saturday. Right? Let me pray for our time, then we'll get started. Lord, thanks for who you are. Thanks that um, thanks that you saw fit to uh, enter into. Um, our story, and um, to not only uh, save us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin, and to not only give us an initial hope that we might um, no longer be condemned, but that, but that you have allowed us to walk in freedom. And so I pray that this morning it would be extremely clear um, that that the gospel is not only the ABCs of the Christian life, that it's, that it's the entire story. It's A to Z. And um, I pray that, um, that this time would be marked by a movement of your spirit in our lives and our hearts for our good and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, yeah, guys, come on in. As I'm talking and you're hearing my voice, just... Come on in, grab a seat. There's, we got some front row up here. You can like actually get the spit going um, if you want. But uh, 
Uh, and there's a few handouts out there. Also, the books that are back there, you'll, you'll understand because we'll reference them as we go, but those are not your books, okay? <laughs> those are my books. So please don't walk off um, with my books. You can feel free to check them out. They're great. Uh, they're uh, a great tool for transformation, but they're also mine. So anyway, <clears throat> um, hey, as I've thought about the way that I would introduce this class, I, I thought it would probably just be best that I would tell you a little bit about my story. So I grew up... Um, I had a conversion experience. I, had my, I placed my faith in Jesus when I was eight years old, right? A little tyke. Um, actually, I can tell you the time and date. It was December the 30th, 1986, which dates me. I was eight years old, and uh, it was about 11 p.m. in the evening, all right? I remember it like it was yesterday, which is crazy, right? But, um, but I also grew up, in a, I grew up in a strong Christian home, but I grew up in a tradition um, that is largely on a, on a, has many positives to it, no doubt about it. But on the negative side of things, tends, to, tends toward legalism, okay? Um, and so I, I grew up in the church. Every time the church doors were open, I was there. I was, you know, um, I'm, for, for those of y'all who had, like, rebellious high school you know, experiences, you know, welcome. <laughs> you're, you're not alone, I promise. Um, but I was kind of the guy that when you went to high school, I was the guy that was like the goody two shoes guy, you know, that was like never in trouble and, and that sort of thing. And, and as I've grown, um, I've begun to realize, um, how in, in one sense, I'm grateful for my story. I mean, it's the gospel, right? But in another sense, I'm also realizing I, I ended up, uh, talking with a buddy of mine last night, who's, um, leading a program that I'm in out in Los Angeles. And I just told him, I said, Hey, um, uh, I am praying that Jesus would heal me of my inveterate legalism, right? Because God knows I need him to. Um, I will take something that is grace and gospel, and I will transform it into law. <laughs> it's, what, it's what I do. We're addicted to the law. And, and we will take something that is a free gift that's bestowed upon us, and we will turn it into a to-do list. And then measure ourselves by the to-do list. It's, it's what I tend to do, for sure. Okay? And, and I think that, as I've also looked at my story, and I've looked at um, areas of my life where I've seen drastic transformation. I mean, the whole topic of, um, the whole topic of this entire class this morning is, is uh, becoming like Jesus. And, and you'll hear us use a term called Christ-likeness. Um, so there are areas in my life where I see, where I see drastic growth and, and Christ-likeness. And then there's other areas where I see very little transformation and immaturity, right? And so I'm sitting here going, oh, and it's funny because all of those areas where I see very little transformation, um, when I trace it back, then um, I, can, I can almost um, always trace it back, one, to, uh, to, you'll hear us talk about this as well, to a false narrative about God, and two, to my own personal attempt to manage and control my life in my own power. Hmm. All right. Now, and what's funny is, is that we can be in a culture where we're where we're managing and controlling our own behavior and the people that we go to church with and our community group will pat us on the back the entire time. Right. And yet what we see in in that type of life is just an exhaustion, a a lack of transformation, a lack of Christ likeness. And so. It just took me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, and then uh, I'm going to pass it along to Duke. But if you'll open your Bibles real quick, um, turn to Galatians. And if you haven't read Galatians in a while, well, um, the legalist side of me is like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> the gospel side of me is like inviting you to come, right? <laughs> um, so Galatians is a, it's a short book, and, uh, and it's, it's probably one of the books in the New Testament that, that most clearly articulates um, uh, grace and the gospel. So uh, chapter 3, verse 3. Does anybody want to read it? Raise your hand. Anybody? We're also recording this, so as we do this, hey, Gordy, he's going to talk in the green mic, all right? Galatians 3.3. 3.3, yeah. Yeah, Galatians 3.3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's it. All right. Pretty simple. Paul says, and he's obviously talking to the church at Galatia, and which had fallen into this idea of, of what I was just talked about, legalism. And, and it was Christ plus what I can do for me. And, and, uh, and, and Paul basically says, hey, who tricked you? Are you so foolish? You having, having begun by the Spirit. In other words, um, you, you're convert. I mean, all of us would raise our hand and be like, yeah, when, when, I, when I placed my faith in Christ, I would wholeheartedly say that that was a work of the Spirit in my life. I mean, I don't think anybody would deny that. I don't think anybody would say, oh, yeah, I totally concocted this thing. I dreamed it up. And, man, look at how I worked it out in my life. I mean, all of us, if you, have, um, if you are in Christ, if you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then it's very clear to you in that moment that this is a work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And yet what we tend to do is exactly what the, Galatia, the church of Galatia did, is, yeah, the Lord has, the, the Holy Spirit has saved me, and so now I got to get to work. Now I have to now I have to accomplish my sanctification or my becoming like Christ um, it, through the works. And what what we're going to argue this morning is is ultimately through the works of the law. And and so and what Paul is saying is, hey, no, the Spirit began this work, and the Spirit is also completing this work. Conversion, justification is a work of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification. The process of becoming more like Christ, the process of Christ being formed in you, is also a work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So look, by way of introduction, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And then, Duke, bam. Yeah. Take it, brother. That pretty much sums up the day, actually. See y'all um, later. <laughs> <laughs> that if you walk away with only that, that's exactly what we intend for you to, to grab and to hold on to. Uh, by way of reminder, if you've heard that before or for the first time, perhaps if maybe you've grown up in a culture similar to the one that Nathan ex- described uh, his experience from. Um, but with that, let me, uh, let me share. I, I have a similar story like Nathan grew up in a pretty performance-driven uh, household. And, um, and it, my mother was an interior decorator. Every, everything, appearances were important. Uh, her mother was a hairdresser. Appearances were important. Uh, I played uh, football and was always evaluated on performance, and, and performance was, was really important. And, and from that metaphor of football, I've thought through how much that narrative, that narrative of what I do defines who I am, or what I do actually uh, lends itself to me becoming who I'm supposed to be uh, in isolation. It's all on me. It's all on my back. Uh, and, and that groove has been worn deeply into my, my self-perception, deeply into my worldview and the way that I go about life and, and, and things. But one, one thing, football is a central part of my life. I played uh, football in high school and um, ended up having the opportunity to go play football in college. And I had this experience where I had this, this coach who was recruiting me 
And his name was Andy Moeller, and, and he was a linebacker from Michigan, and he was a great guy. I looked up to him. I thought he was really cool. He would come to my high school, and he would tell me that I was really cool, and he would tell me that I was really awesome, and I should come to Mizzou, which is where I went to college. And, and it was this great thing. Everything was good news. Everything was uh, green means go. Everything was, hey, this is going to be awesome. Uh, you, should, you should come to Mizzou and play football. And so I was excited about that. I was excited about playing with this, or for this guy. I was excited about playing college football. Everything was, like I said, good. And uh, I remember distinctly the first day of practice. So uh, freshmen in college have like two practices or two days of two-a-days before the upperclassmen show up. So I got to like freshman two-a-days at the University of Missouri. And Andy Moeller, this coach, as soon as I got there, he said, Hey, Duke, lots of expletives. I won't, I won't share them. Hey, Duke, I don't have to kiss your blank anymore. Your blank is mine. I'm going to own you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to mold you. I'm going to break you. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to, you know, and he just went off. And he was, he was doing it tongue in cheek, kind of. Uh, but, but largely, uh, it was true. There's a, there's a sense in which, uh, in the recruiting process of, of football, you're, you're everybody's all American. You're a cool kid. You're, they're telling you how amazing you are. Uh, but when you show up, there's a little bit of a bait and switch. And it starts to become a little more like the military. You're a plebe. You're a nobody. They're going to break you down. They're going to tell you you're nothing. Okay? And what I fear has happened for many of us as it relates to the gospel is that when we were non-believers, we heard the gospel and it was good news. It was, it was like awesome. It was better than good. And we were like, I cannot believe that this is true. I cannot believe that in my sin and in my inability and in my brokenness, God has loved me so well in Christ as to make me righteous, to adopt me into his family, and to invite me into this, this life with him. Okay, but then we get into it, right? And it's like Andy Moeller shows up, uh, this coach, and, and now we start hearing, get to work. We start hearing, hey, that, that's, that was just what we said to get you in here, okay? And now that you're in here, we're going to bark orders at you. We're going to tell you all that you're not doing. It's going to be very much a performance-based acceptance, Okay, and that is to me the big, one of the greatest dangers in the church is that the gospel would be good news for those people out there who don't hear it and, and don't know it yet. But for those of us in here, I'm assuming that many of you or most of you are in Christ, that you are now Christian, uh, that it has become about performance in our sanctification. Okay, and this is not a new a new problem as. Nathan spoke to in, in Galatians, okay, this has been going on in the church for the longest of time, okay, since the first century, this default mode of the human heart to take what is good and what is a gift and then to systematize it and to uh, place it into a spreadsheet and place it into a grid and to make, take the emphasis off of God and what he has done and to place it onto us and what we must do is deeply hardwired within us, okay? It's, it's, it's within me. This is a daily struggle. So when I share this and when Nathan shares this, we're not sharing this from a place of, hey, we graduated from this struggle and now we're going to help you guys get there too, okay? We're sharing it from a place of our default. The groove that we fall back into most readily is this performance-based acceptance, seeing our standing with God as fluctuating based on how we're doing, okay? Against whatever scorecard we've concocted, concocted, okay? Whether that's spending time in the Word, prayer, sharing our faith, doing ministry, uh, whatever else it is. You might have a little bit different scorecard, but we've all kind of got one, and we're evaluating ourselves, and we're thinking, okay, God is pleased with me because 
I have done these things or God is disappointed with me because I have not. Okay, does that resonate with anybody? I'm the only one in the room? Yeah, I think all of us are familiar with the struggle. And so the goal today, if you walked out of here, and, and I'll define the win. If you walked out of here and the gospel in the present, okay, sounded like good news again, that would be a huge win for us. That's what we're praying. That's what we've been praying for you guys this week. And as we've prepared is that you would think the gospel is good news for me right now. It's not just good news when I was coming into the family of God. It's good news for me right now. It's still good. And that that would return to you the joy of your salvation. And that when you reflect on what God has done in Christ, there would be joy right now. Okay? Not as you remember your past. Okay? But as you remember your sin right now, as you think about what it looks like to walk with Jesus right now, there would be joy. Okay? That's our, our hope. And we believe that this is actually the vehicle through which God grows us up into Christ. Okay? Which is looking at the gospel in the present as good news and understanding it and comprehending it for right now is the way that we grow up in a Christ likeness. So that's also our hope that you would be more equipped in your own growth in Christ because of your understanding of how the gospel relates to right now. Okay? And the final goal that we would have or benefit that we feel like you would experience if we uh, are blessed by the Spirit in this time for a work is that you'd be better equipped to minister to others from a gospel perspective as opposed to potentially a law perspective where you might be using the law in your counsel to others and, and attempting to justify the flesh to the works of the law. Okay? Paul said it was foolish, but we all do it. And it's, it's something we naturally fall into. And we think, hey, if I can just get this person to memorize this verse and I could tell them enough times, maybe they'll just change and they'll just be like Jesus. We'll, we'll show the folly of that and why the law was really never intended to justify flesh. Um, so let me pray for us again, because I know this is a tall task. Those, those uh, objectives are lofty, and, we, and let's be honest, Nathan and I cannot accomplish that in you guys or in us. Okay, this is a work of the Spirit, and we want to make it very, uh, very plain that if those things are accomplished, it'll be because the Spirit does a work. Okay, that's what we're talking about today, sanctification. But let me pray that over you guys and for you guys. Father, we can do nothing apart from you. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were passive. We were laying there helpless, unable to change anything about our situation. But God, being rich in mercy, because you loved us, you sent Christ for us, and you woke us, you, you rose us from the dead in Christ. And you're continuing that work. We ask that you would do a significant work in all those who are here this morning to bring the good news to bear on their hearts and minds in the present and to equip us to do that with others, God. We desire to be heralds of good news. And, and we want to do it in a way that's not faking it and pretending like it's good when we're not experiencing it as good. Lord, help it to be authentic to our hearts as we share it and as we counsel and as we share our faith. Father, we just ask you, because we can do nothing apart from you, would you do a work in us this morning? In Jesus' name. We are going to do some dialogue today. And when I mean by dialogue, I'm going to ask questions and really expect responses, which is great. In a room like this, we can do that. And so really the first question I have for you is, how do people change? Okay? And, and this can be your opinion first, and then maybe in popular opinion. So maybe Oprah's opinion or Dr. Phil or somebody else. How, 
How do people change, in, in your opinion? Okay. Uncomfortable situations. Yeah, if you can't get a mic to someone, I'll just repeat it. How else? Being good listeners. Being good listeners. Okay. Yeah. Just the influence, whatever's around you, the influence. Yeah, so good influences around you or, or bad influences. We change one way or another based on our influences. Okay, how else do we change? Desperation. Desperation. Okay, we change because we have to. <laughs> we're, we're forced into a situation where we have no choice. Okay. Yeah, what else? Yeah, um, the way that you've been taught, what you've been taught can, can change you. Okay. So there is, there is an element of change where you have to think a new thought, right? At some point, it goes through the brain, and you have to have a new awareness or new, new data. Yeah. What else? White-knuckle discipline. Yeah. White-knuckle discipline. You just have to get disciplined. You just got to wake up early. You just got to do it, right? You just got to work hard. Yeah. What else? How do people change? Okay. Circumstances. Certainly. Yeah, circumstances have a huge role in change. Similar to maybe the last point or a couple points back. Yeah. Anything else? Maybe, maybe let's shift a, a bit to Oprah or to the worldview of popular culture. Uh, how do people change in the eyes of contemporary America, perhaps? Yeah. You just will yourself to change. Okay. Yeah. Will yourself to change. Mm-hmm. It's willpower. Okay. Take antidepressants. Take antidepressants. Oh, yeah. Yes. Override your, your, your system with, you know, endorphins or whatever happens with, with that dopamine or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You set a goal and then create action steps to recycle. Absolutely. So you begin with the end in mind, right? And then you, you create a system, reverse engineer a system of what would you need to do today and what would you need to do this month and this quarter and, yeah, goal setting. What else? And I'm not saying all these are wrong, okay? We're not, we're not uh, shooting down even some of the worldly wisdom that might be there, but we're going to talk through the implications. What else? What else does the world say is essential for, for people to change? Information. Yeah, often you'll hear that... Um, yeah, I remember one time hearing Denzel Washington. He was on one of the late night shows, and he had just done that movie with the drug dealer. I, for, I forget even the name. He was like a drug dealer in New York, and they were introducing crack cocaine into New York in the 80s or 70s. I forget the name. But he was talking about He's like, hey, this guy would have been great. It was just, it was just education. He just lacked education. If he, would, if he had been educated, he would not have been depraved in a sense. I mean, that was what he was saying. He was just saying, hey, education is the answer to everything that ills society, uh, if we can just educate people, everything will right itself. Yeah. What else? Okay. We can stop there. I'm going to pull this around and, and, and give you guys a grid that has been extremely helpful for me in, um, in thinking through sanctification. It's, it's related to biblical worldview. I'll try to put it as far back as possible hoping that everyone can see it. But as we talk through how people change, the default of the human heart and mind is to focus really all change on human doing, okay? This is the most natural thing in the world. I'm not going to pick on you guys, but I think maybe every answer we got was something that we do. Was it not? 
Did you guys hear that or pick up on that? So this is the default of the human heart. And there's a secular version of this, and there's a sacred version of this, but it is that people change through what people do, okay? And that is very, very pervasive. Let me walk you through the biblical narrative. Actually, before I do that, I'll I'll set the need a little bit. Let me talk about uh, the secular version. So I'll read a quote here from Madonna, and, and you'll perhaps recognize this as a struggle. Maybe you have. I have. So Madonna, this is in Vogue magazine. She says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess I never, it never will. Okay, did you pick up on the language there that Madonna has to continue to reinvent herself. She has to continue to do shocking things, impressive things, great things to be somebody, okay? And, when, and with this, we're really talking about human doing creates human being or identity, okay? Meaning we, we gain our identity through what we do, Okay? We have to do something to be somebody. And this is deeply pervasive in our society. It's deeply pervasive in this town. When you meet someone for the first time, they ask you, what do you do? Because they're trying to understand who you are, right? And they're going to define you and who you are based on what you do, okay? I'll go on to another example. Everybody's seen Chariots of Fire, right? We usually talk, pastors usually talk about Eric Liddell, right? That's the guy that we focus on. He's this guy who, who runs and he's a Christian. He's a missionary in China, Great guy, but there's another guy in the movie named Harold Abrams, who's, his, who's really Eric Liddell's chief uh, competition in the race. And there's a quote from Eric Liddell in the movie that I think is it's very human. It's very familiar for me as one who is ra- you know, raised in a performance-based uh, environment. But he says this about racing. He says, uh, he's talking about looking down the corridor of like the 100-yard dash or whatever it is, and this is kind of his worldview. He says, I'll raise my eyes and look down the corridor. It's four feet wide and 10 lonely se- uh, seconds to justify my existence. He's saying, if, if I run fast, if I win, then I deserve to exist. Then I have meaning. Then all of a sudden, I deserve to, to exist. Okay, again, his doing, his ability to, to win the 100-meter dash in the Olympics is what gives him his being, his identity, okay? Without being able to do this, he's nothing. He's saying, I don't even deserve to exist if I can't do this thing better than anyone else in the world, okay? We all have different ways and means of finding our being or our identity through what we do, okay? And I'm going to argue from the scriptures that this is completely inverted. This is not God's design. This is not the biblical narrative, This is a false narrative, okay? This is a worldly narrative. This is, I believe, the work of Satan to to lie. I mean, he is the father of lies and to move us away from the goodness of God, to move us away from his work in history, in Christ, to move us away from a true identity that we receive because of the work of Christ so that he can get us to do all sorts of things, unhealthy things, okay? We'll talk through that 
on, on several fronts today. I, I, drew, I just gave three examples through the scripture of what I think the biblical narrative is and how it flows. The first one we would start with is Genesis 1. What is, what's the first phrase of the Bible? And then the next word. In the beginning, God. Okay, so the Bible starts with who? With God. Okay, so in the beginning, God, what does God do in the beginning? He creates. Okay, who does he create? Yeah, he creates all, everything we see. And if we talked about the human aspect, because that's what we're focused on today, we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about us. Uh, He creates image bearers, right? These people who've been made in his image. Okay, then what has he asked these image bearers to do? Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, what else? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, what else? Exercise dominion, basically. Steward the earth, shepherd the earth. You're going to be vice regents with me. You're going to help shepherd and steward all that I've created. Okay, so you see the narrative is God, he, he just exists. He just is, pre-existent God. He acts. Because he acts, we exist. And because we exist, we now operate within his world that he's made, with the design that he's given us. Okay, in no way did we create ourselves. Okay, nobody goes to Genesis 1 and says, yeah, this is a story about humans making themselves. Okay, and humans giving themselves a purpose. Okay, and an identity and a significance. Just, that's just ludicrous if you come to Genesis 1. Others might come to Exodus and go, yeah, that's the way it started. But once you get to the law and you get to Israel, God kind of flips the script. He kind of makes it about law. He makes it about doing. And all of a sudden, Old Testament's really burdensome. It's all about the law, and it's all about these 500 things they have to do to be Israel. But that's short-sighted as well. Because if you look at Israel, this people, God comes to Abraham, he makes promises. He reiterates the promises to Isaac and to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Okay, they go to Egypt because of, the, because of famine. Okay, they're there for 400 years. God raises up Moses, right, to deliver them from slavery. And, and in this, he comes to Moses and he says, I love my people, my covenant people. Because I love them, I'm going to deliver them from slavery. Okay? I'm motivated by love for my people and my promises that I've made to them. I'm going to deliver them. And so what does he do? What does he do with Israel in Egypt? He does miraculous work to deliver them. Okay? So he delivers. So who are they? They're his, his covenant people who he has redeemed from slavery. And then he gives them the law. And if you read Exodus 19, before Exodus 20, where you find the Ten Commandments, you'll see this reiteration of who God is, what he did out of love and affection for his people to redeem them, and, who, and, and, and a reiteration of, hey, you are my, I will be your God, you will be my people. Now live as my covenant people as a testimony to the world so they can know what Yahweh is like. So other people can come in and experience the goodness of God. Okay, you see that progression, even in the Old Testament, even in the law, in the place where we might expect human doing to be the most central reality. Even there, it's not. It's, God is the most central reality. What he does is actually most important. We are his people. We have an identity derived from him. And then now we live and function out of that identity. Okay? Certainly this is true in Christ. What does God do? He takes on flesh and he dwells among us. Okay, he lives a sinless life. 
He dies a substitutionary death in our place. He raises on Easter, three days later, defeats sin and death for us. Okay, for those of you who are here and you're saying, I don't know what the word gospel means. When you're using this word gospel, it means good news. Okay, it's news, not instruction. It's news about what God has done in Christ, not instruction about what we must do to get to God. Okay, that is the gospel. When we use that word, that's what we're referring to. We're referring to the Christ, the God in the flesh who came for us, died for us, rose for us, defeated sin and death for us. Okay, now who are we in light of the work of Christ? We could throw out, there's lots of ways we could go with this. There's so much said about us, but let's hear from you guys. What are some things that are said about those who trust in Christ? Born again, again. okay, absolutely. What else? Sons and daughters, daughters. we're adopted. That's probably my favorite. It's it's so beautiful. And and family is the most dominant metaphor for the church in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. okay? Paul uses brother over and over. He uses inheritance, God as father, He uses all kinds of metaphors to say that we are now a part of God's family. It's huge. What else? We're a new creation. Absolutely. What else? We're righteous. Yeah, absolutely. What else? We're heirs. We're heirs. Yeah, that's back to the familial language. But yeah, we're going to share in Christ's inheritance as part of the family. Yeah. What else? We're freed from the power of sin. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, a royal priesthood. Yeah, absolutely. We can actually mediate between God and man. We can go directly to him as a, as a priest could in the Old Testament. Yeah, what else? Ambassadors. Ambassadors of Christ. We're representing a king in a foreign land. Okay, we're helping other people in that land to understand what our king is like. Yeah, what else? We are like Christ. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you see in the gospel the same progression. God acts in Christ. If you, if you study the language of salvation in the New Testament, you'll see very passive language when it refers to us. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Okay? What does a dead person do? They just lay there, right? Dead people don't do anything. Okay? They can't do anything to change their situation. They lay there. Okay? But God, being rich in mercy, in Christ, comes and regenerates us by his spirit. He brings us to life, okay? It's God's work giving us a new identity. And so when you come to church and you come to the scriptures and you come to sanctification and you come to what you're supposed to now do in light of all that, it's, it's got to have a ton of context behind it, okay? And I, I feel like the joyless life that we referred to um, even this morning is a function of building an enormous wall on this side of the, of the board, and all we see is what we must do. Okay, we've lost sight of God. We've lost sight of what he's done, motivated by love for us. We've lost sight of our identity in light of his work, and now it's just work. Now it's just our work. Okay, and I think Satan is very crafty. I think he's very intent upon getting each one of us to that space. Okay, because when he has us there, he can get all kinds of work done, all kinds of unhealthy work. Some of it looks religious, right? And that might even be the most sinister, you know, because now you've got this plastic fake fruit that's supposed to be good, and you're telling everyone it's good, and they're just going, that just doesn't look good. 
You know, you seem joyless. You're talking about the joy of your salvation without joy. You're talking about it's good news, but you, you don't seem like it's good news. Okay? People can smell that on us, by the way. They can pick up when you're not really believing the gospel, but you're trying to invite them to believe the gospel. You're telling them about this place that you're really not experiencing. Pick up on that. There's human intuition or emotional intelligence or whatever you want to call that, but people can tell when it's false in your life, when you're not experiencing joy, but yet you're saying there's something there that is, in fact, joy. So we talked about the, the secular version of this with Madonna and, and Harold Abrams. I'll talk a little bit about the sacred version or the Christian version. Nathan's already alluded to it. I've been alluding to it. <clears throat> and there's different names that we might call it. It's certainly what Paul was addressing in, in Galatians uh, or the, to the church of Galatia. And it, some people would call it moralism or legalism. Okay, And, and the, the, the moralistic narrative as I understand it, for most of us in, in the contemporary church, North America, we really do believe that the gospel is good news for justification, which is to say the gospel is really good news if you're a sinner and you don't know Jesus and you need to be forgiven from your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. Okay, most people are pretty good there. And so from that perspective, I would say, I'll write out kind of a progression that I think is going on. There's a then, now, then thing happening when we think about the gospel. Some of you are aware that the gospel is talked about in three tenses, meaning that the gospel is talked about in the past tense, like you have been saved, right? You'll see verbs that are in the past tense throughout the New Testament. You have been saved, which is really justification, like God has done a work and, and you have been saved. And so we look backwards and we're saying, okay, the gospel is for the past sins. I'm good there. We often look forward. You will be saved. You will go to heaven when you die, so to speak. And we're pretty good there. We're saying, yeah, yeah, I get that. I get to go to heaven because of Jesus' work. And I'm thankful and I'm excited about it, hopefully. Uh, and you get the gospel future. You will be saved. But there's this, I think, this sucking void in the center uh, where you are being saved. And again, notice the passive language. Okay, you are being saved. Okay, that's not doing language on behalf of humans. That's God language at work in us. You are being saved. Okay, the Spirit is at work in you, saving you in the present. So the gospel is good news in the present. Okay, one of the, one of the reasons we do battle with moralism, one of the reasons we want to do battle with legalism is that it, it brings about all sorts of bad fruit. Uh, the first, and I think most perhaps important thing, is that by its very nature, moralism and legalism take our focus off of God and they place our focus onto self, right? It's no longer about God. It's no longer about what he's done. It's about us and what we must do. And so at the very core, legalism is self-focused. It's man-centered, okay? You really don't need God to do legalism. You really don't, okay? And I would argue every religion of the world, and there's another class going on in another room about world religions, and I'm sure they're sharing this, that every religion of the world can do moralism and legalism because you don't need God to do it. It's just about what humans do to clean themselves up, to appease 
a deity to achieve some kind of enlightenment. It's human doing to accomplish some spiritual goal. Anybody can do that. You don't need even a god in that religious system to do that. Okay, Buddhism or, or Hinduism, it, it really doesn't matter what you exchange there. And I would argue Mormonism, you know, or any religion that is pseudo-Christian in some of the language, but really the emphasis is on human doing. It's indistinguishable functionally from the, world, the other religions of the world. And the scariest part for, for you and me, because I don't think we're as susceptible to fall into Mormonism or Buddhism, but we are very susceptible to fall into Christian legalism, which is the most sinister, sneaky way that the enemy can move us away from the gospel. And it looked really similar. Okay? I mean, we could have, I'm going to pick on you two right now. We could have two Christians side by side, and one of them is overwhelmed and overjoyed with the good news of God, what he's done, who he is in Christ, and he's operating out of that space, out of the gospel. And then the gal to his left does the same things as him, wakes up and reads her Bible like he does, wakes up and prays like he does, okay? goes to, to church on Sunday like he does, shares her faith like he does. But she's doing it in this inverted sense that we talked about. She's, she's seeing her identity as coming from her doing. She's thinking that her standing with God is derived from what she has done. Okay, now over time, if you watch these two people closely, you will in fact see that one starts to have less and less joy, is more and more burdened, starts to have some fruit in their life that's very unlike Christ. Maybe they're hiding it. Maybe they're dressing it up. They're trying to polish it. They're trying to spin it. They're trying to deny it. But it is the pharisaical life. It is this life that is deeply religious and looks religious and has religious language attached all over it. Chapter and verse from the Bible, right? Tons of chapters and verses. In fact, maybe the legalist has memorized more scripture than the gospel guy. Okay? And so you're like, well, they're quoting scripture all the time. I guess that's the deal. I guess they get it. No. (laughs) If they're not operating from this progression and from the biblical worldview and from the gospel worldview and actively trusting in God and his work. And if it's not God-centered, it's man-centered, they've missed it completely. Regardless of how much scripture they know, regardless of how many spiritual disciplines they are engaged in, okay, it really doesn't matter. It's the same, I mean, it's just a, another way to avoid God. <laughs> okay, I know that sounds odd, but you can avoid God in the church by being really, really good. By making it about you and what you do, you don't have to deal with Jesus. Okay? You don't have to deal with the depravity, with the inability to do anything apart from him, from your weakness, from the things that you don't want to see about yourself. Okay? You don't have to look at Jesus. You can look at you and your scorecard. You can work really hard and feel good about yourself. Now, never mind, it's a complete lie. Okay? It's complete false. And your fruit is that plastic fruit that you see in the decorating stores. My mom, the interior decorator, okay? Or this wooden fruit. Have you ever seen that before that sits on someone's coffee table? It's that, okay? And over time, it starts to show. Over time, there is uh, some obvious counterfeit realities that start to manifest. Moralism produces three kinds of people. I talked about Pharisees. 
It, it produces pretenders, okay? People who really know they're not even close to being a good Pharisee. They're just coming to church and playing church a little bit, right? They're just pretending uh, a little bit of ritual, a little bit of this, and really they're running pretty hard after other gods. It also produces, I would say, prostitutes. And, and I'll use the, I'm using three Ps, isn't that, isn't that cute? Uh, <laughs> Pharisees, pretenders, and prostitutes. But prostitutes are basically that person that goes, screw it, I, I can't do all that stuff, okay? I can't do all the, the law. I can't do all the stuff I'm supposed to do. So I'm not even going to try. And it's just a pendulum swing to like throw your hands up, walk away. Like I'm not even going to play that game anymore, okay? At least they're honest, right? At least they're not pretending. At least they're not deceiving others with religion and saying it's the real thing, okay? But it's, it's, it's a road to destruction, as you know. The other thing that happens with moralism and legalism is we have to redefine God's standard, right? If we're, gonna, if we're really going to hit the mark in our own work, we really have to change the standard because God's standard is perfection, okay? And God's standard is so unattainable for us. So the whole point of the law, if you read Romans, read Galatians, the law was intended to be a tutor to, to instruct us in how much we failed, I know that sounds discouraging, but that's exactly how the law was intended to function. It was to give you a perfect standard to show you how far you fall from that perfect standard. Okay, it builds the need. Okay, I work in marketing now, and it's all about creating need, right? You're trying to convince people that they have a need for something. Okay, the law is, is marketing for the gospel. It's building a need for people by their complete failure to adhere to God's standard. That's all the law really can do. Okay, we'll argue that all day. The law, it wasn't intended to do more, and it really can't do more. We've already said that it cannot justify flesh. Okay, it cannot make us righteous. It can only show us that we're not righteous. And it does that very well, if you're honest. But the moralist and the legalist redefines the standard so that they can meet the standard. Okay, this is, one of the things we've talked about another feature, it's joyless. Over time, if you watch the moralists or the legalists, there is no joy because they're white knuckling it, because they're working hard. It's this drudgery. It's like, I don't know if you meet some of these people that are like hard, hardcore workout fiends and stuff, but some of them are kind of mean, you know? I mean, discipline all day long, every day. Uh, I remember this track coach we had in my hometown. He'd make his kids run on Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day. He was a cross-country coach. Seriously militant, seriously crazy dude. Um, and he was mean. And we always, I always just like associated with that. And it's probably not fair to, to runners and otherwise. But I'm like, I think if you run too much and you discipline yourself too much, I think it just makes you mean. <laughs> I just think there's something about it. There's some threshold at, at which when you cross it, you're just mean. Um, and so I, I think there's something to that as it relates to moralism and legalism uh, at some point. It, you're just mean. You know, you're, you're dressing it up with Bible verses. You're guilting people. You're telling them it's the real thing. But they're just going... I just don't want your life. You know, that's great that you're able to hit your mark and you're able to meet all the religious um, you know, standards that you're, you're attaining to. But I just, I don't want to trade my life for your life. I don't want your life. Okay. The other thing I said, it's indistinguishable from every other world religion. Human doing to achieve identity is generically religious. Pick, pick the variety of the month. It doesn't matter whether it's got some Christian language sprinkled over the top, whether it's Mormon, Buddhist, doesn't matter. It's human religion. Paul calls it a false gospel. 
It's pretty serious. In Galatians, he says, this is, he uses the word hetero, like hetero, right? Another of a different kind, didoskele, which is like teaching. He's like, this is another of a different kind. This isn't even close to the gospel. This is just something else entirely. You're using gospel language. You're throwing Bible verses over the top, but this has nothing to do with God, what he's done with Christ, in Christ, and who we are in light of that. Nothing to do with it. Okay, and that's confusing. You've got to be discerning to sift through that. It's everywhere. <laughs> and this is the default of the human heart. I think this is the most natural thing for us to do because the gospel strips us through the law. It shows us our inadequacy. It shows us our weakness. It shows us, man, I can't do anything. And as you grow in Christ, you know what's going to happen? And this might discourage you. And I've got this, uh, there's a great book. If you want to do a curriculum with a small group or somebody to dive into some of these truths, there's a book called The Gospel-Centered Life by a friend of mine named Bob Thune and another guy, I forget his name. But they basically show that the cross is fairly small when you're just coming to Christ. That's not a bad thing. It's just your awareness of sin is maybe minimal. And so what you've got received in Christ is good, but it's not as good as you realize. But maturity in Christ really the older you get in Christ, the more you realize your depravity and your weakness and your inability, if you're honest with yourself. And the more you realize the magnitude of Christ's work and the more thankful you are, the more grateful you are, the more you're like, oh my gosh, this is good news. Okay? I, I thought I was given this gift, which was pretty cool. I was actually given this gift. It's way bigger, it's way more significant, and there's more gratitude and thanksgiving. But that's humbling, right? For your, for your self-reliant line or your, your, your sin line to be going deeper into failure. And you're realizing that over time. God's pulling back the curtain and showing you more and more of your depravity. That's humbling. It's a lot more fun to craft your own scorecard and to feel good about yourself and to feel like you're hitting it and to be prideful about your own performance. Okay, religion is, is easier on the ego than the gospel. But... The gospel brings this, this flood of joy on the back end, this long tail that is overwhelmingly joyful. Okay, when we're operating from the law, when we're operating from legalism or moralism, I want to hear from you guys, what does our self-talk sound like? Okay? How do you talk to yourself when you're operating in that worldview? I can do it. Yeah, I can do it. Absolutely. I can't do it. Okay. <laughs> What else? I got to do better. I feel like that might be the most, most central if you're honest. Yeah. What else? I do it way better than Yeah. <laughs> Comparison is huge with the Pharisee, right? Uh, thank, the, the Pharisee sits on the street corner and says, God, thank you, or next to the publican, thank you that I'm not like this person. Look at their life. What a mess. Thank you that I'm not like them. Yeah. It's huge. What does our counsel sound like? So we're, let's imagine we're in community and we're operating out of a moralistic worldview. How do we counsel somebody who's struggling with sin? Give them to-do to lists. Yeah. What else? Spend as much time in the Bible every day. Or... Yeah, a formula. Yeah, yeah. Do it and do it harder and maybe we could figure it out. Yeah. What Behavior else? Behavior modification. Yeah. Let's figure out a way to get you, and that, which is like stapling fruit on a tree, right? Like, let's find some fruit that isn't real, but let's, let's staple it up there and make it look real. Yeah, 
never addressing the heart, never addressing false beliefs about God or otherwise, totally focused on man and man doing, devoid of gospel. Yeah, what else? You ever get Bible verse zinged? <laughs> does, everybody, does anyone ever pull a Bible verse out of context and just throw it at you? <laughs> like like the law could justify flesh, right? Like, hey, if I'll just hit them with this command, it will conform them to the image of Jesus. Okay? Hey, we, we, can snipe, we can snipe some people with some Bible verses around. Yeah, we can snipe. Yeah. And the one that I see, and I'll use as an example, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down uh, for, for Nathan. We've got to make space for the, everything we've got to get through today. I see it with, with Philippians 4, 9. Do not be anxious for anything, but, you know, and everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. You know, present your request to God, and the peace of God will transcend all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds of Christ Jesus. And we, you know, zing somebody who's anxious with this, with this command, like, don't be angry, anxious. Stop it. You know? And, uh, and it just doesn't work. Okay? Because the law, out of context, thrown at you, human doing doesn't change us. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I'm not saying that, if, that Philippians uh, 4.9 is not true. It's absolutely true. It's just we're using it in a way... We're using New Testament, which is, which is gospel, as law. As if it could justify the flesh. Okay, I don't know if I'll end with this story, but maybe you've been overseas on a mission trip and you've found that guy who uh, is trying to speak to the natives, but he only knows English. And so he's saying, do you have, you know, a restroom around here? You know, and the guy's like, no, 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 no. He's like, do you have a restroom around here? And it's like, I tried English. That didn't work. So now I'm doing louder English. Okay, because maybe louder English will work in the situation. I feel like sometimes in community, we, we zing each other with Bible verses. And if that doesn't work, we get louder with our Bible verses, right? We get louder with the law. Like the law didn't justify you. We're back here again. You're struggling with the same thing. I'm going to say it louder. Now I'm a little bit angry. Okay? This is gospelless, Christless, and devoid of a, a right understanding of who God is what he's done in Christ, who that now makes us in our new identity as new creations. And then we operate with don't be anxious. But I would invite you even in Philippians 4 to back up to Philippians 4.8, which says, God is near. <laughs> Have you ever seen that? Did you know that's the, ver- that's the phrase that comes before Philippians 4.9? God is near. Do not be anxious. Okay, it's because of who God is that we're not to be anxious, not because somebody just threw a biblical imperative at you. Okay, I'm going to close with that and make sure we stay on track. Yeah, thanks, man. Just a couple of thoughts that I had while he was talking. I think, um, you know, and and I I did uh, part of our seminary education is is, uh, you have to take languages, and when you take languages, you have to talk about grammar, right? And so there's two different uh, types of, of uh, well, there's actually more than two, but two primary in regards to this. And, and one of those is, is a word that's called an indicative, right? It's just a truth statement. If you, it, the, indicative, uh, um, uh, the, the indicative mood is, is that, hey, I'm just, I'm just going to um, tell you something that, that's just true. And the other one is an imperat- the, the imperative, right? And the imperatives do this. And, and I think to summarize, you know, what Duke is saying, I think so often in our own life, personal lives and then also in the life of the church, right, what, what's our default? The, the imperative. Do this. Do this. Do this. Without establishing the indicative. This is who you are. 
Right? And, and so far, I mean, what, what we've established so far is, no, you need to establish who you are in order to make the, the imperative effective. You see what I'm saying? And so, man, I, both of us, actually, we talked about this at, at length before. Um, I think one of the biggest things that got left out on, on how do we do this in our communities is that, um, man, we, we, will, we will do, like, blatant appeals to pride, Right? So, hey, in order to move you, then we're going to create tension that appeals to your pride, so that will motivate you to move. So I was in a, a, uh, I was in a meeting not two weeks ago where there was a guy that we we're, were helping counsel, and, and he's uh, dealing with some stuff about uh, some past sin and reputation and stuff like that. And one of the appeals to him in that meeting by guys in his community was, dude, Think about in the future when you're going to have such a great reputation, right? And, and, and almost like this, this passive motivator to, uh, I mean, he, it really is a passive aggressiveness to say, hey, think about, think about the, the time where, where you're going to walk around here and you're going to have this great reputation. Now, do the work that you need to do in order to get there. Right? These are the types of these are the types of kind of insidious. It really is a good word for it. Um, these are the types of things that just kind of go uh, under the surface that are motivating us. Atten- uh, that's really more than anything else, more deeply habituating the legalism that's in our own heart. That this that this deep seated habituation that I really can change myself if I discipline myself to do this, and over time that will work itself out to actually bring about transformation in our lives. And what Duke and I are standing up here together saying is, hey, I'm calling BS on that, all right? Um, and if it wasn't Watermark, I would just, I would say it, you know? But I'm not, actually, uh, if I was Todd, I would say it. <laughs> but, um, but, but I'm not Todd, so if I say it, I'm going to get in trouble, right? <laughs> so, but BS, all right? Um, hey, why? So let's look at this. Um, and I think that this is extremely important that we do establish this because um, primarily what we focus on when we talk about sanctification is what? Uh, above the line or below it? Above. We are, when, when we, typically when we think about sanctification or becoming like Christ, we, we uh, water it down, we dilute the gospel down to a series of to-do lists. It's external only. So when you look at a tree, I mean, there's a tree right there. You know, I look at the window, there's a tree. Uh, all we see is the, the trunk of the tree, the branches, and the leaves, and if it's a fruit tree or whatever, then fruit that it's bearing. Okay? We, however, I mean, the, the external thing is, is merely a byproduct of, some, of a natural process that's going on underneath the ground. Right? And so what, what I'm going to appeal to in the next 10 minutes or so is that um, in order for Christ to, uh, to bring about the type of transformation that only Christ can do in our lives that really can do nothing but bear good fruit, then he's working on us on a level that's really um, pr- not primarily external at all. And, and the issue with this is that for most of us, when it comes to external righteousness above the line, we have all kinds of things. I mean, you go to Equip Disciple, and you sit down with your 2-7 series book, and you open it up, and, it, and there's a checklist, right? Memorize this verse. Do this Bible study. Do this, and you go do it. So, so I was at ED uh, on Thursday night, and a guy, um, I always like that ED, like, 
It's Equip Disciple, right? Um, so they're not the other commercial, right, for like uh, uh, Cialis or whatever. But, um, sorry. Uh, so basically, at Equip Disciple on Thursday night, and, and uh, this guy stands up, and he's got his three memory verses memorized so far. And so, we're, and, and rightly so, we're celebrating this guy. Like, hey, this is a good thing. We're, we're not saying that the spiritual disciplines are bad. In fact, I'm going to end the class today talking about how th- those are good things. But, but again, for people who are deeply habituated in this personal legalism, we can make them bad, right? And so when this guy goes out and he sees, uh, man, John 5, 24, he, he believes in, the one, in me and the one who sent me is no longer condemned. He's passed out of life, in, uh, life into death. Yeah! And he puts his hands up and everybody claps for him. And it's like, sweet, you know? And, 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 a, and I'm, again, like, I'm encur- we're encouraging the guy. It's good. But what can tend to happen by people who are deeply habituated in this is it, it can become, dude, I memorized my verses and I read the Bible and I shared my faith this week. Dude, you know? This is a, a, I'm good. Right? Never mind that everything below the line you're totally oblivious to. And, and, that the tra- and that the stuff that you think is transformation in your life is really just an external form of righteousness that's a therapeutic way for you to deal with your own brokenness. Right? And so, what is our brokenness? Well, let's look at it. In every single one of us, we are all, and Duke alluded to this, we are all made in the image of God. The Imago Dei is a Latin term that's just the image of God. And so in every single one of us, and I would say both in Christians and non-Christians, every single human being that is made in the image of God and every single human being has implanted in them something that God um, has said, hey, I, it is my desire to redeem this. Okay, so, so it's, it's God's thumbprint on our lives. I mean, this is, uh, you know, language out of, out of John. It, it, you know, it's the will of God that everyone is saved and comes to the knowledge of the truth. And so there is implanted in us God's good desire for us. However, um, we are not born with a blank slate that is just God's good desire implanted in us. We are also broken. We have in us, like Duke has alluded to as well, pulling back the curtain to realize I am fundamentally a sinner. I'm fundamentally broken. My life is fundamentally distorted. And not only that, but we're brought up as children by parents who are also broken, and they're parenting us in broken ways. All right? I, and dude, I had good parents, and they're still broken. There, there, there are uh, things that are happening when we're children, and we are framing our worldview that that not only are we, do we live in a broken world and, and that our worldview is being framed by the, the, the primary narrative of our culture, but also the, our own parents' brokenness that's, that's bleeding into this. And we are being um, tr- really trained to, um, uh, we are being trained in our distortion. Well, that creates in us perceptions and beliefs about the way that we view the world. And, and to, to, trans, translate or, uh, to transfer over to a Christian worldview, this is also something that is, um, uh, that is our perception and belief about God. This is, this is how we create in our own life false narratives about God. So I, I shared with you my story, right? I'm a, I'm a little tyke. Hey, now I make a faith decision to follow Christ and regenerate. Then my dad begins to disciple me, and I begin to go to a church where people celebrate the fact that you have your Bible verse memorized and that you've, that you've done your Bible study. And, and at school, when somebody is trying to stump me with a question and they can't do it, 
And I'm like, see, you know, like these are my, my perception about um, my perception about God and also being an athlete and playing football in high school and college um, is also this this God is cosmic coach that if I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing, then I'm getting high fived when I come off the field and the crowd is on their feet cheering. Right. Um, which I'm like, that feels pretty good. I can understand how we can become addicted to that stuff. The difficulty with that is what? You're not always playing like you're supposed to. And you're not always keeping your to-do list perfectly, are you? And so when you come off the field, instead of high fives and the the crowd roar, there's a lonely bench over there that you go sit on. Like you're in timeout, right? And, And this is deeply habituating not only our view of ourselves, but also our view of God. I know I'm talking about myself right now because it's the only story I really have the authority to talk about. But, but I mean, just plug and play your story. Like, what were your broken perceptions about reality? What are your broken perceptions about God? What's the false narrative about God that goes, that you neurotically negative self-talk that goes on in your brain? Ugh. I didn't, uh, you know, when, when you show up for your Bible study and you haven't read through the whole thing this week. So I hope nobody calls on me. You know, because if they do, I'm going to be really embarrassed because I'm, I'm, I was supposed to do this. And if I didn't do it, then now all of a sudden I'm not in the club anymore. Right. Is anybody identifying with this? Right. I mean, this is this is the way that we have been deeply habituated. Um, and, and ultimately it does. I mean, there's massive false narratives about God. And what that does is that creates in us feelings and emotions. Right. So, again, God is cosmic coach. Um, there's a distance there. There, There's not a distance there when I, when I'm doing, you know, according to my own scorecard, when I'm doing the things that I think I should be doing. Right. And so I'm like, man, Lord, I I was available and I shared the gospel with that guy on the way, you you know, at, at church today, or, or I, somebody asked me a real difficult question and great questions and I, I nailed it and I'm driving home and I'm like, yeah, God's pleased with me. You know, as if, if I don't do that, he's not pleased with me. Right. And so um, that's creating an emotion in me where I'm like, man, I, I, I feel good when I'm keeping the to-do list on my scorecard. Um, the, the problem uh, about that is that we don't always keep the to-do list on our scorecard. We definitely don't keep it perfectly. And frankly, there's a ton of sin and brokenness in our own lives that we don't know anything about. Right? David is praying and confessing his hidden sins to the Lord. This is not a, a hiddenness that... That, that he's like, hey, I've actively hidden these things from you. He's saying, no, there's stuff out there that's hidden from me that I don't know about. And I'm confessing that to you, right? Search me, know my heart, see if there's any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the way of the everlasting, right? David's praying these things. And so we, we have these feelings and emotions, but we can't perfectly keep our scorecard. And so what that does is that creates feelings about feelings, you have an emotion that's, okay, I'm good if I do good, and I'm bad if I do bad, but if I, but, but I, if I feel bad, then, then I have a feeling about that feeling. I know I'm supposed to please God, but I don't please God, and so that creates an enormous amount of angst in my life. Right? I, I, I end up walking around like seeking ways to therapeutically like cover the brokenness that's seeping out of my life. 
I'm attempting to manage it. I'll sew it up. I'll put a Band-Aid on it. I'll cover it up. I'll clean it up. I'll you know, hide it over here if it's coming out a little bit too much. I'll wear a, a trench coat or something like that. Right? We, do, we do these types of things. Why? Because, because we, we, know that, we know that we're supposed to be this type of person, but we're not. And so that creates an enormous amount of tension in our lives. Right? And, and because largely these things are unevaluated, um, we, we've not been introspective enough to really know our own heart, then what we end up doing is we cope. Right? I know I'm supposed to be like this, and that creates an emotion in me. But I'm not like that. I'm over here. And that creates another emotion in me. And, and, and it's, it's like putting a cherry bomb in a mailbox. Right? You, you're like, hey, this thing's going to go off at some point, And it's going to be a loud bang, and it's going to destroy a lot of stuff. Right? And so what we end up doing is, is, is we come up with coping mechanisms to hide our brokenness. And, and for, for some people, it's, you know, um, it's, it's as benign, I say benign, it's all jacked up, all right? But this is, it, uh, according to the world that would look at these things, it's, it's more benign than other things. But, but as benign as, as uh, like we've been saying, like... Uh, um, uh, in, in your own strength and power, disciplining yourselves to feel good about, man, if somebody asks me if I've read anything in the Bible this week, then I'm going to be able to tell them. If, if, if I go to a Bible study, then I'm going to have my verse memorized to, to look good in their eyes so that I can feel better about myself. Right? Um, that it can be as benign as that type of coping. It can be as severe as as substance abuse, um, doing, doing any sort of ad- addictive type behavior to just numb the pain of your empty life, right? And so, and, and the, the, the scary thing is, is that some people can recognize, it, it, can, become, it, it can become so, uh, those addictive behavior patterns can become so external that people see them that somebody will go to Regen for that. Because what did we say before? How do people change, right? Well, um, consequences or force pushes them to change. And th- th- this is the crazy, scary part, is that some people can go to uh, regeneration or some type of recovery ministry and, and, and basically own the fact that's obvious to everybody around them, I have a drinking problem. I have an anger problem. I have a self-image problem. I have a lust problem. Well, duh, Right? And, and what, what we can do in those types of ministries, if we're not careful, is we can give those people just enough tools to teach them to manage their behavior better, to put more like fences up around their lives so that they're not jumping over the fence anymore, and, and give them just enough tools to, to give them um, the ability to, uh, to cope in another way that's less severe in the eyes of the church. And really, there's been very little, if any, transformation actually in that person's life. So you'll see people go through recovery ministry, get enough tools to manage their behavior, but you can only manage your behavior for so long. And then what happens? They relapse. They go back into the, pro- or they try another recovery program, or they go over here, and that helped, and now it doesn't help anymore, so now I'm going over here. It's all this Christian self-help type stuff. Now, don't hear me say that there's not actually real transformation going on in, in ministries like gener- regeneration. I think that there is. And I thank God every day that we have something like that, right? I'm just making a point from, uh, for, for the sake of clarity here that, that this very much can be the case, 
right? So we cope. It's, and frankly, I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm going, well, of course we cope. Dad gum, man, what else are you going to do? I mean, this is all jacked up. <laughs> I mean, God's good desire in us is, is, is on top of that is brokenness, distortion, your own parents' sin, your, your perceptions and beliefs about yourself and about God. And you begin to believe false narratives about God that create emotions in you. And then your failure to keep this perception creates emotions about those emotions. And you're just like, I guess I got to white knuckle it. Right? And it, it, you know, the the stuff that's underneath is going to create the external image. That's that's what drives your behavior. And we have this neurotic negative self-talk because we're attempting to cope with something that we really, frankly, a lot of us don't even understand. And here's the point, and and then we'll stop for a break. Our behavior is about our response to all of our brokenness and our wounding. All right? Um, Changing or managing your behavior does nothing. Let me say that again in case we're a little bit slow. In case I'm a little bit slow. Changing or managing your behavior does nothing. Healing woundedness transforms your behavior. And only the gospel can heal your woundedness. Only believing the gospel in your life can heal your woundedness. And so be not discouraged, brothers and sisters. (laughs) Um, I know that can be a little bit depressing. You walk out of here and you're like, oh, God, I'm way more broken than I thought I was. Right? Um, And and you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, praise be to God that he's revealing to you your brokenness. Because... In your brokenness, he meets you to heal you, right? And so this, the second half of, of, uh, of our class will be all about, hey, um, yes, we're broken and we're all jacked up, but we're going to talk about what does Christ do below the ground line, right? And the rest of the class, we're going to unpack that, all right? Hey, 10-minute break. Let's be back in here at 10.50. Uh, 8-minute break. <laughs> but if you can try to be back at 10.50, then we'll get cranked back up. Again, uh, Duke and I will be around if you want to chat with us. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was telling somebody next What's to me. What's your name? Uh, Paul. What's up, Paul? Hi. I was telling somebody next to me that when I thought about this class, I was thinking that, okay, well, this is going to be a class that's going to be related more to understanding and knowing the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, okay, I'm just going to be relearning the gospel. And that was kind of my thought when I took the class. I was thinking, well, do I really need this class? Because I thought that was what it was going to be about. And when you addressed that it was more about moralism and about legalism, and I was like, you know what? Honestly, that's that's what I need. Um, that, that's the kind of stuff that I didn't think about that was going to be introduced in this class. I was thinking more. It was going to be more about okay. Well, this is the gospel. This is kind of what um, is the understanding of the gospel, and going from there, you know, the basics. That's kind of what I thought it was going to be about. Yep. It's the basics about Christ. Yeah. So, Paul, right? Yes. So, yeah. So, I would say that um, you just illustrated, kind of, you're helping us make a, the point, is that for a lot of people, for a lot of people, the gospel is sin, substitutionary atonement, faith, believe, pray this prayer to accept Christ, and then move on with your life. Right. Right. 
Yeah. And what, obviously, the point we've made is, no, the gospel is much, well, frankly, deeper and richer than that, right? Mm-hmm. And that it's not only for past sins, but also for present. And, and I think that's part of my thing that I think about is um, when I came to Christ, I realized that, okay, well, he took care of um, some of the things in my past. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then when moving forward, you know, yep. sometimes I fall into what Paul's talking about. Mm-hmm. Where I think, well, yeah. at this point, you know, because the church introduces, well, because this is who you are now in Christ, yeah. your behavior should be this way. Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's interesting is, uh, I mean, you guys read the Watermark News ever, the, those stories, I think called stories of grace, which is great. I mean, um, what, what's a typical theme of those stories? Kind of unpack that for me. Go ahead. You're, before Christ. Yeah, and what does the narrative typically look like in those? Before Christ, I what? Broken, Train wreck. Well, I was a train wreck, and then I came to Christ, and now I'm, now I'm all better, <laughs> right? Except, what's the problem with that? Not really true. That's, that's right. Right. So, so even, even in our attempts to share stories of grace, right, to a broader body, what we're really doing is, is more deeply habituating this Okay, you were broken, and Christ healed you, and now you're not broken anymore, right? And, and this can be, this can be I, now let me say this, as an employee of this church, I don't think that that's the intent of the church to communicate that, right? Um, well, and, and I, I, I really, I don't, but, but I do think that, that for people sitting in the, in the auditorium and reading this, the lens through which they're reading it is producing something that's like, oh, dang, I was broken, Christ healed me, but I'm still broken, right? And what do I do with this? And, and what we're saying is, yeah, well, the gospel freed you from the penalty of sin. It is also freeing you from the power of sin, right? And, and will ultimately free you um, from sin altogether, right, in glorification. So, um, so, yeah, it's great. Did you have another comment? or? Well, that, you kind of addressed that. Okay, that, cool. That's kind of what I saw I mean, before I really, uh, when I was saved and I was, uh, you know, I just had like a saturation with wanting to know God's word. Yeah, good. And, mm-hmm. and so from that, I, you know, the spirit led me to understand more about what his word was really meaning and the, totally. the, the understanding behind it. And then, and I knew I needed to get into a church body. And so I got into a church body um, and I came to Watermark because the biggest thing was, learning God's word yep. and that was focused um, as opposed to other churches where it seemed like it was traditions yep. do this tradition do that do this do yep. that you're yep. good let me, let me say this though about that I don't, and I, I always I'm a big fan of like the whole church for the whole city and the whole world but let, let's say this there are probably regenerate lots of regenerate believers in virtually every church that is preaching Christ in any way that does open the Bible um, and, and so I don't want to any means give the impression that most everybody's missing this. 95% of everyone is missing the gospel and sanctification or anything like that. Um, lots of people are, are actively working this out yep. or actively believing the gospel, but just struggling like I do and like Nathan does, maybe mm-hmm. like you do, and, and knowing that we attempt or we have a tendency to fall back into that religious rut of putting the focus on us and what we do as opposed to God and what he has done. And then... And the other little corrective I'd say before we go any further is 
there are a ton of imperatives in the Bible, okay? A ton of commands about what we must do. And don't hear us say, like, ignore the imperatives, okay? Don't obey God anymore. Don't do all the stuff that he calls you to do. It's to say, absolutely do all of it that was in that fourth column of how we live, but do it in light of who yep. God is, yep. what he's done in Christ, and our new identity. So. Yep. And I'll, the last section of this class, will, hopefully, will be really clear mm-hmm. on that. Anything else before we move on? Yeah. Let's say, Freddie, hang on, wait for Freddie. Right now in the spiritual life, we're practicing the discipline of waiting on Freddie. (laughs) (laughs) Freddie's doing awesome. Uh, My name's Jake. Uh, I was just going to ask, how do we, without it going into a works-based formula for this, but what what are some practical applications for people like me who have known Christ? I've been at this church for 14 years and still struggle with, uh, as you would say, BSing. I know all the right answers. I, yeah. can, I can answer you. How, how do I be this real person yep. that is transformed from the inside out yeah. and not just focused on yeah. changing what yep. I'm doing? Perfect, yeah, so let's, perfect segue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, if you still have that question, which I'm sure you will, to, there will be nuances to it, but that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Bam. Jake, my main man, Jake. Hey, uh, this next thing we're going to do for about 10 or 15 minutes uh, is actually a practical exercise. So if you're taking notes or whatever, put, put it down, all right? Just be, just be here. Um, and uh, uh, so here's what I want to do. Um, I want you to uh, take a few minutes, and uh, I know I'm going to use this word, and some of y'all are going to freak out, but um, let's meditate, Okay. And, and what I want you to think about is what is, what is a core central um, uh, event or uh, emotion or something that's, that's happening in your life right now? Like, it's probably the thing that you've been thinking about nonstop for the last 48 hours, okay? Or it could be something that's been ongoing in your life for years. I don't know. But it's just that thing where if somebody came to you and said, hey, what is the thing that's going to move you to tears? If they bring that up, that's the thing that's going to do it. All right. Um, so think about that. All right. And what I want you to do is take it. We'll take a few minutes to think about it. And then I want you to I'll give you about three to five minutes. And I want you to just pray about that one thing. OK. Again, we're not praying for Aunt Bessie's dog that's sick, right? Um, we're praying for this, for this thing or person or event or circumstance or whatever it is um, that is near and dear to your heart, okay? So I'm going to shut up. You guys think about that and then spend about three to five minutes um, praying about it. Okay, I would, just, I would just ask you to just continue to be in an attitude of prayer. Continue to pray. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. As I ask you these questions, I'm not interested in what you think is cognitively or intellectually the right answer. I want you to pay attention to your gut. Um, I want you to think about the, um, the gut emotional response that you have to these questions. So just stay in the attitude of prayer. And, uh, and as I ask the questions, just reflect on your response to them. Who are you praying to? Are you praying to the Father? 
you are praying to the Father, what kind of Father is He? Is He pleased with you? Is He disappointed? Is he loving? Is he angry? Are you praying to the Son? Is he close to you like a brother? Is he someone who is necessary for your salvation but is relationally distant? Is he a kind shepherd? Or is he keeping score? Are you praying to the Spirit? Does the Spirit comfort and pursue you? Or is the Spirit undefined, unknown, maybe even scary? Is the Spirit encouraging or is he frustrated? Who are you praying to? Father, search us. Search our hearts. 
Help us to discern. Reveal to us the areas of our lives, the thoughts, the intents of our heart that are rooted in and continuing to believe a false narrative about you. Heal our wounded hearts. Father, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, hey, normally um, normally when I do that a little exercise, um, I love, well, first of all, it's typically a much smaller room. <laughs> um, but uh, normally I like to get feedback from people. Um, just, hey, what'd you think? Um, and we don't have time for that today. So I would tell you um, that if you are processing through that and you're kind of like, if you're like me, the very first time I did this exercise, somebody else was leading it and I was sitting in your seat. Um, for me anyway, it was uh, revolutionary. Um, because my gut level response w- did not equal my intellectual response. And I've, I knew God to be a loving father who was not disappointed in me, and yet I felt like he was. Um, and again, <clears throat> um, I think if anything, this, this should reveal, you know, either one, that, man, um, our narratives about God are on a gut level um, response are based in the gospel, um, or if you're like me and there are areas of your life where your perception about God is not based in the gospel, then I would encourage you to, to uh, seek a trusted friend that you can bounce that off of and, and just talk through um, this week as you go. Um, yeah. There's a, when you, you know, Jake, right? <laughs> when Jake's like, hey, you know, um, how, do, how do we change? You know, how do you become like Christ? Um, well, I think we have to start with something like this. I think you have to start with, well, who do you, what do you believe about God? Right? I mean, I, I, for, I think for far too many of us, I'll put it that way, for far too many of us, we are carrying around with us an emotional weight that we may not even know is there. Because we're believing something about God that's not true. And you're emotionally just um, shackled um, almost all the time. And, and uh, we'll come and, and we'll say, we'll put on, we'll, we'll cover it, we'll paint it, we'll shine it, we'll, we'll say the right thing. Uh, we'll have a God concept, a concept about God that's biblical but functionally in our hearts, the image that we have of God is totally false. And, and what I'm saying is there needs to be healing there before there can be healing anywhere else. And um, so I think this is where we start. So Duke's going to come up and talk about, um, well, what should we believe about God? <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. That was, was good. Good for my soul, uh, for sure. Um, you guys know JP. 
Jonathan McClure, he's a good friend of mine. He talks about how people miss heaven by 16 inches, says the distance between the head and the heart. So they might, they might hear the gospel and intellectually understand it, but they don't, believe, they don't ever believe it in their heart, and so they never actually come to know Christ. I would, as I've reflected on this talk and, and as in our time together, I've really seen that same principle to be true, the gospel as it relates to sanctification, which is to say we miss Christ's likeness by 16 inches, okay? We, we do, and I'm not saying we're not regenerate. I'm not saying you're not really in Christ and that you haven't been adopted and you're not going to heaven when you die, okay? I'm not saying that, but I'm saying in your daily walk, your God image is false about God and that the distance, the disconnect that, that Nathan just helped all of us experience is keeping us from being conformed into the image of the Son. It's holding us back because of all the false narratives, the false pathways that we've already alluded to this morning. Okay, so really the process of sanctification, if, if we really want to get down to how do people change punchline, is we have got to begin to close the gap between the God who really is and the God as we view him to be. Okay, that's got to become completely synced up. We have got to, with our authentic self, encounter the authentic God as he is. Okay? And let's just be honest that most of the time that is not synced. Which is to say we are believing lies about who God is. And it should not surprise us given the fact that Satan's chief vocation and his title is the father of lies. Mm -hmm. Which is to say what he does better than anyone and all the time is to convince us about lies about God and ourselves and how we should live. And that's true of everybody, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian. Okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to dive into some handles that hopefully give you some equipping for two fronts. The first is taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When lies are coming into your head, we're going to try to equip you to grab those it's almost like a quarantine, okay? We've got a Ebola on the mind. You're going to catch that as it's coming in, and you're going to try to quarantine that lie. You're going to say, wait a second, this, this doesn't belong here. This is damaging. We've got to isolate this lie. And we've got to compare it against the Scriptures, okay? Don't hear anything today that we're down on memorizing Scripture, down on knowing this book very, very well. It's essential, okay? It's God's self-revelation. You want to know God, you've got to know what He's revealed about Himself, Okay, it's essential, but we've got to capture the lie and, and conform it to the, you know, sorry, what's the, the phrase? We've got to take the thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. The other one is Ephesians 4. When we're counseling one another, when we're living in community, the chief way that the church is built up, and I encourage you to go to Ephesians 4 today, we don't have time, but the chief verb in that whole section of Ephesians 4, beginning in probably 10 or 11 and moving forward, the chief activity of the church is speaking the truth in love, we're built up into the head who is Christ, which is to say we're being conformed to the image of Christ, all the things we're talking about. We do that by speaking the truth in love, but we need to be speaking gospel truth in love, not generic verses ripped out of context and thrown as law, as if law could justify flesh. Okay, and I hope we've made that distinction fairly clear today. So there's a book that has been really, really helpful to me personally. Um, I, as Nathan said, I planted a church in Portland, was there for over five years. And, and some of the most significant spiritual growth that I saw in Christ happened through teaching and equipping people to take thoughts captive to the beings of Christ, to speak the truth in love from a gospel perspective. 
And there were some handles that were helpful in that process. And one of them comes from Tim Chester's book, You Can Change. So Tim Chester is a, a pastor in the UK, and he is a very good theologian, but he's, he's a pastor, and he has a pastor's heart, and he does a great job of taking big truths about God and making them accessible and giving us handles to hold on to. And so he has a, really this, this spiritual exercise or this spiritual equipping tool called the four G's. And the four G's are four big truths about God, okay, that we need to know at any given time in order to live in light of the truth, okay? And Chester says this. He says something that Nathan's already, I think, revealed to us this morning, that behind every sin is a lie about God, okay? We can focus on the behavior. We can say, okay, the behavior's wrong. The behavior's not okay. Let's all agree. The behavior's not okay. No one's saying it's okay. But the behavior is the fruit, and behind bad fruit, you trace it back to bad root. And that root is a lie about God. Okay, even in the garden, right? Satan comes to Adam and Eve. And, and what does he say? He's like, God's holding out on you, right? God doesn't want you to have what he has. He doesn't want you to have the knowledge that he has. So first, before they can take an action, which is a bad behavior, they first have to believe a lie about God, this God who holds out on you, this God who doesn't give you his best, this God who is, is ripping you off in some fundamental way. You need to go outside of him to find life. Okay, it's interesting that it says, and you'll become like him, that, that inverted thing that we talked about earlier, that you're doing, you're eating of this fruit will help you to become like God. Right now you're not, you're inadequate. Uh, there's something wrong, God's lying to you. And, and so, again, behind every sin is a lie about God. Chester goes on to say, We sin because we believe that we are better off without God, that his rule is oppressive, that we will be more free without him, and that sin offers more than God. Which isn't fundamentally about behavior. It's a fundamentally a commentary on what we really believe about God. And it really, all sin says in big letters, God is inadequate. Okay? God is not enough. God is insufficient to meet the deepest needs of who I am. I must go outside of him to find that. Okay? Which is a huge lie about God. Okay? So all sin can be traced back to the root of a lie about God. And I'll show that hopefully through that. And so as believers, part of our experience of sanctification is that we are simultaneously believers and unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're believing some things that are true about God, some things that are true about the gospel, some things that are true about ourselves and our identity. But then there's these other things, these bad roots, where we're believing lies about God. And we're not seeing how the gospel relates to a given area. We've got this silo where with it, when it relates to our job or it relates to our relationships uh, with the opposite sex or when it relates to money, God doesn't have anything to do with that. Why would, why, what does that have to do with God? right? And there's, there's bad fruit that's coming from those avenues. It's interesting in Mark 9, we see this dynamic of believing and unbelieving in the same context. There's a man, he's a father, and he has a child that's demon-possessed. And Jesus asks him if he believes, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Okay, and it's helping us get attention for the fact that our faith is imperfect. Okay, and I, some of that might scare you. We might think, well, no, faith has to be like 100% rock solid or you're probably not a Christian at all. That's just not the way the scriptures talk about it. It's not, God, if you look at that in Mark 9, you could go there later today. Jesus doesn't rebuke that man for saying that. The man was being honest. He's like, I believe, but help that part of me that doesn't believe. Will you help me shore that up? Will you come and help me? 
Okay? You see it in Abraham, who is the father of faith, right? Abraham is our example of faith. Well, Abraham two times pawns his wife off on other guys out of fear that he's going to be killed. What is he saying? I don't believe God can protect me from other people when I have a hot wife, okay, in this culture. They're going to they're gonna kill me and take my wife. Okay, God can't protect me. God can't do anything to help me. I have to help myself. Okay, so the father of faith, and we know that Abraham's faith was salvific. Okay, that's a really geeky seminary word for it was sufficient to bring about salvation. We know that Abraham was justified, right? He was declared righteous by God because of his faith. So his faith was, it was strong enough to be saved, okay? But it wasn't perfect, okay? He was not perfect in his faith in God. He had these failings, and so do we. So today we're inviting you to be honest about the fact that you very well may be saved, and I hope you are, trust that many of you are, but your faith is imperfect. There are still areas we need to get in and root out. Lies that we're believing about God, lies that we're, ways that we're ignoring the gospel, we need to come back to it. I want to illustrate this one other place in case you're going, this is new to me, and I'm not sure that this is right, or, I, I'm, you know, give me one more, one more shot to sell me on this concept. You can go 2 Peter 1, 3 to 9. You probably don't have, we don't have time to turn there. But this is a really interesting section. It's talking about that we've received a faith, beginning in verse 1. We've received a faith of the same kind, okay? By righteousness from God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's grace and peace that's multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Okay, God has not only declared us righteous, saved us, he's also given us every resource through his spirit within us, through the revelation for, for life and godliness. Okay, we can't ever say that we're under-resourced or that we can't obey God, we can't live the Christian life. He didn't give us the raw materials to, to live like, like Christ. He's saying, no, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called you by his own glory and excellence. For by these things, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. And so then he starts talking about sanctification. This will sound familiar. He says, start to apply all diligence in your faith. Supply that with moral excellence, and that moral excellence with knowledge, and your knowledge with self-control, and your self-control with perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Love being kind of the ultimate of what God is after in us. God is love. If we're conformed to his image, we will love like he loves. Okay, and so you maybe at this point you're going, see, it's a lot of work. He said we had to do these things. We had to, we had to have moral excellence. Then we had to add this other to-do list. Then we had to do self-control. Then we had to do perseverance. We had to do godliness. Now we have to love brothers. And then we just have to love everybody. And then we'll be okay with God, right? He says, is that the road to sanctification? You read on in the context. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, listen to verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities, those people who aren't becoming like Christ, those people who aren't changing, who aren't looking more and more like Jesus every day, why are they not on track? Here's why. Because they become blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from former sins. What is purification from former sins? How would we define what that is in the New Testament context? Forgiveness, justification, the gospel, 
right? The reason they're not growing up and all these things is because they've forgotten the gospel, okay? It's not because they're not white-knuckling enough. He didn't say anything about their, their lack of discipline. He said, put on discipline. But he said, the way that you're going to actually be able to pull that off is by remembering your purification from former sins. When you remember God's work for you, and you apply that to your sanctification, you're going to grow up. These things are going to be increasing in you. It's really interesting. You have to apply the gospel to your sanctification in order to experience the change that God wants to bring about. What I'm going to do here, we're going to talk about the four G's. I'm going to give you some bad fruit. I'm going to talk about some fruit that comes out of our life, some behaviors that we know are not right. We see them pop up, and we're going to try to trace it back to the root. We're going to try to identify the lie that we're believing about God that's given rise to this. Okay? Anxiety. Okay? When you're anxious, you have a couple things. You have fear. You have worry. You're a control freak. Okay? What are some lies, or what's a central lie that you're believing about God that we could trace back to the root when we're operating with this bad fruit. We know this is bad. We know we're, we're commanded not to do this stuff. So what, is, what are we believing about God that's giving rise to this behavior? He won't, he won't provide. Yeah. He won't. He can't, he can't handle it. He can't handle it. Yeah. He's not all loving. He's not really for us. We've got to look out for ourselves. Yeah. No, that's essential. And so really the, the first 4G, and I'm going to have to go pretty fast. The first one is God is great, so I don't have to be in control. And this is that core theology of the sovereignty of God, right? That like God created everything and he has an order for things. He's overseeing all that's happening. God is great. He is, he is overall, sees all. He's intimately acquainted with the circumstances of your life. He knows and understands what you're afraid of. He understands the real threats you face. He understands the things that went wrong in the past and why you're so worried it's going to happen again. He knows all that. And he's not asleep at the wheel. He's present. He's great. So you don't have to be in control. Okay? That's central in the four G's. So we're going to trace this back. The lie is that God is not great. That he's all the things you guys said. He's aloof. He's absent. He doesn't care. He's not for us. He's incompetent. Somehow, and, and, and here's the interesting thing about these, is that when you're experiencing these, you would never admit that that's your theology about the Father or God. You would never say, you know what, I really think God is incompetent or God doesn't care. My theology, okay, tell me your theology of the Father. Well, he doesn't care. He's not present. He can't do anything about my situation. But that's absolutely what the fruit of our lives is manifesting as our true God image the exercise that Nathan took us through. So I'll ask us some questions. Where, um, what are some areas of your life where you try to seek control? Relationships. Relationships, absolutely. You want other people to do what you want them to do. Yeah. What else? Work. Yeah. Someone over here? Addictions. Okay. Funny, uh, finances, money. I said finances and money together was funny. Yeah, finances. Yeah. What else? Your children. Yeah, that's a, that's a real frustrating one if you want control. Uh, absolutely. 
And what does that produce in you as you, as you attempt to manage those things and to squeeze them into, into the right spot? Stress. Stress. Yeah. What else does it produce? Anger. Inadequacy. Feelings of inadequacy. Yeah. What else? Guilt. guilt. Yeah, how, how, how does guilt show up in... Okay. You, the, your expectation is that you should be able to control them. You're clearly not able to control them. Now, you, there must be something wrong with me. I'm a bad parent. I, just, I should be able to control my kids. They should be perfect. They should do it right. They're not. That's, that's on me. Yeah. You're having feelings about your feelings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fundamental lie is that we believe we're better at the wheel of our life than God. We do a better job of managing our life than God could ever do. Okay? Which, again, if we were to have to write out our creed or we had to write out our theology on paper, we would never want to write that. You would, you would know just immediately that's a wrong answer if you study the Scripture. You'd be like, no, that's embarrassing. I would never say that. But it's absolutely your God image at that moment. Is that God is not great, so I have to take control myself. God is not sovereign. He's not ordering things. He's not overseeing things as, as they unfold. So it's, it's up to me. Some other fruit, and we're going to have to go fast. And I would encourage you to get, you know, you can change and, and to spend more time here because we are flying. But uh, the next one is, let's talk about fear of man. Anybody struggle with that? Kind of worrying about other people? Do you ever get nervous before you go into social settings? Anybody? Right? Nobody else? Okay. Fear of man. Anyone here ever overcommit? Anybody? A few of us overcommit. Anyone crave approval? <laughs> okay. Does anybody change behavior based on the audience that you find yourself in? You tone some things down a little bit because you know it doesn't play as well at work, and you tone it up over here, and you move, and you morph, and you kind of adapt your image based on the crowd around you. Anybody else ever done that? Okay, all the time. Anyone, anyone a people pleaser? Okay, What's, if, when I mani- we manifest all these things, fear of man, uh, craving approval, and all the other things I've listed, what's the lie that we're believing about God that we could trace back to a root? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We're not good enough. There's an inadequacy about us such that we need other people to affirm us. We need other people to like us for us to feel sufficient. Yeah. Now, what else? How else would you describe the, the lie about God when we're living for the approval of others? God's love isn't enough. Mm-hmm. God's love isn't enough. We need people's love. So it's like, that's cute that God, the God of the universe loves us, but I need Joe over here at work. You know, that's actually more important than God. Um, yeah, in that sense. And there are, there are book titles at times that you, without even reading the book, are, are very instructive. And you just go, I learned something just by reading the title of that book. Um, and, and I would say that about Ed Welch's book. And it is, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Okay, it's a book about fear of man. It's a book about codependence. And it, again, that title, this idea that when people are big and God is small, how do we live? We live this way. We live with fear of man. We live being controlled by the perceptions of others. We, we, we crave approval. We overcommit because we don't want to disappoint anyone. And we strive like crazy to justify ourselves. So the lie 
is really that God's voice or word about us, the things he said about us are, this is going to be a nice abbreviation, secondary, okay? Maybe he has said some cool stuff about us in the scripture. Maybe we are a new creation. Maybe we have been adopted. Maybe there is all that stuff about us, but that's secondary to, to what the people around me say about me. What they say is turned up to a 10 and it's in my ear. And over here, what God said about me is turned down to about a one. People are big, God is small. Okay, and the truth, the 4G, and I'll start writing these. So the first one was, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Sorry for this. I'm not the best whiteboard writer. The next one is really going to be, God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. That's one of the handouts we gave you as well. So it's, there are only two sheets back there. One of them is the four Gs. So. so I don't have to fear others. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. It means heavy. God is the heaviest one. If you put God's opinion of you on a scale and human opinion of, on the opposite side, God's weightiness is so much more significant than the crowd. Okay? He is the heavy one, the big heavy And what he says about you in his word, if you're believing the truth about who he really is and you understand him rightly, will far outweigh what others say about you. Which means you can have a whole group of people turn on you, dislike you, disapprove of you, but because you're believing the truth about who God is, you can still function. You don't have to go fetal in in, in your room and and just freak out like, oh my gosh, I just lost this whole group of people and their, their view of me. It's like, well, it's sad, it's broken, but... God loves me. God, the glorious one, the heaviest one, has still approved of me in Christ. Okay, that's a pretty good test when you lose approval. I could tell a story if we had more time of a, of a circumstance that happened to us while we were church planning where a group of about 30 people, most, all non-believers that we were ministering to, all turned on my wife and I in, in a matter of a day over you know, the abuse of one of our daughters and us bringing it to the light and them not wanting to believe that this went on. And all of a sudden, these 30 people that we had ministered to and we'd had in our home and we had sought, and they're good, and we were sharing Christ with them. We are ministering to all of a sudden, 30 people on the same day turned on me and hated me, cussed me out on street corners, flipped me off when they saw me. We went to the same school. Uh, and all of a sudden, I had to do a lot of interior work about, is God really glorious? Is his opinion of me really the weightiest thing? Because I've never had 30 people absolutely hate me before in my life. I'd never been there before. I didn't know what that was like. And if I didn't come back to the truth of who God really was and is, I was crushed by that. I was crushed by that public ostracization, that public rejection. And so many people who just think you're a loser and hate you and think you're the worst thing that has ever, ever happened in their neighborhood. Okay, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Whose opinion of you weighs the most in your life? Right now. Who is the heaviest one in your life right now? Is it your father? I mean, your earthly father? Maybe even if he's dead? Is it your mother? Is it a spouse? Maybe a member of the opposite sex that you're waiting for someone to validate your manhood or womanhood by a romantic relationship? Who's... 
Who is the heaviest person in your life? Your boss? The cool kids? You know, the cool kids change as life goes on. The cool kids in first grade aren't the cool kids in college, aren't the cool kids once you're in your 20s or your 40s, but there's always the cool kids, right? There's always somebody who's kind of the it crowd wherever you find yourself. Is their opinion of you the weightiest thing? When someone other than God is in that weightiest position, what does that produce in you? Insecurity. People are really fickle, aren't they? Praise God that he's not, but people are really fickle. Mm. Yeah. What else? What else does that produce in us? Fear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, yeah go ahead. Performanceism. Absolutely. Achievement. I've got to work really hard to maintain all these relationships. It's like running for office. You're constantly campaigning to keep the approval of these people. Sometimes the people don't even have faces and names. It's this, what will they say? Right? You guys know about the imaginary they people? <laughs> that you don't even know who they are, but it's just they? What would they think if I lost my job? What would they think if I was 40 and still single? What would they think if they found out this about me? They. Right? That imaginary people, the they, is very weighty in your life, and it controls your behavior. Mm-hmm. It actually dictates what you do and don't do. Mm. It's a lie about God. When God is glorious, you don't have to fear others. But for many of us, when we're honest, God is not the weightiest one. What about this? The fruit of discontentment. Anybody ever discontent? Nobody else, just me. Anyone ever struggle with lust or overindulgence? Anyone ever greedy? Thinking if you had a little bit more money, life would be better? Is anyone ever just restless? Even sitting still, you're just like feeling like there's got to be something more. I don't have enough of something. I don't even know what it is, but mm, I need something that I don't have. The lie here is, if only I had blank, then I'd be happy. The problem is that blank is not God. You're not answering that with, if only I had God, then I'd be happy. But what is that thing for you? How do you, how do you answer that sentence How do you fill in that blank? If only I had blank, then I'd be happy. If only we made ten more thousand dollars a year, then we'd be happy. If only I had a spouse, then I'd be happy. What is it for you? Right? You have one of those those questions, right? When I said that and I brought the blank, did everybody have something jump into the blank? Yes? No? Nobody? Okay. Uh, If you're honest, Something filled that blank. There's some daydream that you have that if only this, then I'll be happy. Now, what is the lie about God with discontentment? God is not enough. Absolutely. God is insufficient. I have God. I'm a believer But he's insufficient, so I need God plus some other things in order to reach contentment. All of us struggle with this all the time. What are we saying about God in that moment when we believe that? God is insufficient. I mean, can you imagine coming to Jesus, coming to the Father in the throne room, Isaiah 6, staring at him in his glory and saying, not impressed, nope, not that cool. 
that we do that in our discontentment. We act as if we've really experienced the true God and then we just found him lacking. Again, our theology sounds ridiculous when we say it out loud. Functionally, it's very much our true God image. It's insufficient. So what is the truth? God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. He's a one-stop shop. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. I'm trying to go fast, Nathan. I'm going to have to fly. Sorry. <laughs> the last one. If you're striving, you're overworking, you're performing, you take criticism poorly, you're defensive, and you're hiding. You find these kinds of fruit in your life. What would we trace that back to God? So you're achievement-based, maybe hiding if you're not achieving well. performance-driven, you take criticism poorly. When someone comes to you and brings something to your attention that where you lack, you're angry and defensive. What is that root of, about God? What are we saying when we function out of achievement, hiding, defensiveness, trying to present our best self all the time, shouting down anyone who brings evidence that we're not the best self? What is the lie we're believing about God? His love is conditional. That is huge. We, we, the doing comes back, you know, to informing our being. And we, we become sufficient by our doing, by our performance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What else are we saying about God when we're achievement-focused? We have to perform for him. Yeah. I think this is a really central one for us. Nathan identified it in his own life. I think a lot of us probably did as we did the exercise with him. That we feel like his perception is, is wavering based on our performance. Okay. I've noticed it's interesting, whether it was football, whether it was church planning, whether it's now being, working in marketing, it doesn't matter what arena for me. You can change, you can pluck me out of that situation and the basic de- default of my heart is to feel like my identity comes from my performance. And it, 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 you can change the arena, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a heart issue. Mm-hmm. It's not a circumstance issue. Okay, so changing your circumstances isn't going to do anything to address the fact that our default of our heart is performanceism. In what area do you feel you need to prove yourself? At work? To your parents? To a member of the opposite sex? And what does that produce in you? That feeling of needing to perform? What does it produce? Exhaustion. Absolutely. What else? Self-resentment, self-loathing, self-hatred, because you're not, you're not getting it done. What else? Often it can produce pride or insecurity, right? Pride if you're doing well, you're performing well. It's like, hey, I'm pretty, pretty awesome. Nathan talked about that earlier. Or insecurity, gosh, I'm, I'm doing horribly. I'm not getting it done. The truth about God is, God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. My standing with him is based on who he is and what he has done, and he's offered Christ's alien righteousness to me as, as a generous gift, independent of anything I've ever done. Like, I got invited and adopted into the best family in the world, and I didn't do anything to get there. 
And I can't do anything to get, be disowned from this family. I just am where I am by the grace of God. God is gracious. I don't have to prove anything to anyone. Yeah, I know it's a crazy gift. I know I don't belong here, but I, I am here. I'm in Christ, and I've been given everything in Christ Jesus. I'm going to sit down in a second, two minutes. One thought I want to leave you with on the God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. What is Jesus doing right now? According to the New Testament, where, where is he right now and what is he doing? He's at the right hand of the Father, and what is he doing at the right hand of the Father? He's ruling and reigning. Yeah, and even more like basically what is he doing? Interceding. He's also doing what you guys are doing, right? What are you guys doing right now? Sitting. Yeah, okay, so Jesus is sitting right now at the right hand of the throne of the Father. He's sitting. Why is he sitting? Because his work is done. So when he said to Telestai, it is finished, and now he's in a position of rest, his work is sufficient. What he accomplished for you is complete. He's now in a position of rest, and it is unfolding, this kingdom that he inaugurated with his life and his death and his resurrection, and it's enough. You don't have to prove anything if you're in Christ. Let me stop there. Sorry for... No, you're good, man. <laughs> it's good. So what? So obviously we've identified that... I mean, obviously, like, the, these things are so fundamental to our lives. This is, this is the, the stuff of our lives. The, the external how we live is, is simply a byproduct of this. Right? And so, Jake, to your point again, um, we need to do work here. As a community group, when someone, um, you know, this is one of the reasons I, I love to, even though we're in different community groups, we still get together and, and, uh, and gospel one another's hearts, right? Just this week, I mean, twice this week, you know. <clears throat> I sit down with Duke, and as he's talking, I'm identifying areas of his life of unbelief, you know. And then we sit down yesterday over breakfast, and I'm talking, and he's identifying areas of unbelief in my life, right? And so um, I, I've begun to view accountability the way that we do it as, as much less about, all right, you know, just to use you know, porn as, a, as, as a, it's an easy target. Pull the computer away, put another filter, you know, whatever. Like, this is the solution kind of thing. Instead of, and I think we should, um, in certain instances, some of those steps maybe need to happen. I don't think that needs to necessarily be a default thing without actually asking, hey, in that moment or in, in those times of temptation, what are you believing about God? And how can I re-gospel your heart to believe what's true? This is where the community comes into play. This is where it comes to say, hey, I'm not so interested uh, in, in putting another control measure into your life. It, at the end of the day, it, you know, if that's all we're doing, it's not going to do any good anyway, right? Um, ultimately, what's happening is what, what's going on in your heart. And so let's do work there. So I think we need to reframe even our accountability questions in our community groups to be more around our belief about God than managing our behavior, right? I, th- I think we, you know, to get to a practical nut, nuts and bolts, what does this look like? I think that's part of it. Um, and frankly, I think our community team is doing a really good job right now of producing that type of uh, product for our communities to, to, uh, to begin to move toward. Um, I definitely don't think that we've camped out there um, in the past. So that's one thing. Um, but 
Secondly, uh, man, I, I do think that there is a, I, I was ta- talking to, uh, is it George? I can't remember. Who's the Under Armour guy? They, what's your name again? Dan. Dan. I was talking to Dan in, in the, in the, during the break, and, and uh, I, I told him, I said, hey, I'm going to introduce this new f- phrase. Uh, I didn't coin it. I, I've never heard anybody else say it, but I'm sure I didn't coin it. Um, but it's called actively passive, all right? Um, and, and I think that that's a good way of describing what our role in all of this is. Actively passive. So if you're taking notes, write that down, all right? That's a good one. <laughs> actively passive. So when you talk about the spiritual disciplines, again, for people who are steeped in legalism, we can very easily take the disciplines and make them something that they were never intended to be, right? But uh, Dr. Steve Porter, who's leading my doctoral uh, a cohort, a group out in Los Angeles, said this, the ultimate goal of human existence is to receive, passively receive, life from above, the reign of God. And to allow that divine life, actively allow that divine life to so permeate and influence our thoughts, attitudes, beliefs, desires, and powers that who we are and what we are able to do is beyond what we could accomplish through our natural abilities alone. This is, this is the Christian life. This is life in the kingdom. That, that we passively receive the power of God and we actively participate with him in what he is doing. Does that make sense? So I want to uh, juxtapose two different uh, mindsets. And I, I would, I'm not going to put this on you, but I think, at least for me, I'll put it on me because it's what I struggle with. I, I, I think that you might identify with this, right? You have the legalist. And this is the way that a legalist looks at, this, at the disciplines. So, that, so by disciplines, you know what I mean? Like uh, prayer, fasting, Bible study, scripture memorization, solitude, meditation. Th- these types of things are the things that we are doing in the spiritual life. And this is the way a legalist views them. The goal is moral behavior. The goal is just, hey, I just want my external stuff to look different, right? That's the goal of the legalist. It, it, they are practicing, the legalist is practicing the spiritual disciplines as a means of acceptance both to God and to the people around them. If I do this, you will accept me. It's performance-based acceptance. It is fueled by willpower that's reinforced by guilt and shame. I can do this, right? Not, I, uh, um, I, I want... I, I want to do this because I'm motivated out of if I don't do it, then there's punishment for me or that God is upset with me or that my community is pissed at me. I probably should say ticked, ticked at me. Sorry, my um, worst things have been said, I promise. <laughs> I've said worse things. <laughs> like, like these things are fueled by, by a, a white knuckling willpower that's, that's reinforced by guilt and shame. And, and frankly, it just totally is void of any kind of power to actually transform your life. Right? You, you, may, you may be doing good for a while, but, but ultimately, like Duke said, the fruit that's coming out of your life, it's like we use this image in our conversation this week. It, you begin to realize that I'm not really producing any kind of like lasting fruit here, but I want to look like I am, so I'll like take a plastic apple and staple it onto my tree. Right? These are the types of behaviors that, that the legalists do as they're practicing the spiritual disciplines out of this um, de- desire for external um, 
projection of health when really what's at the root is totally void of any kind of, of uh, life change, right? All right, well, what's the gospel? Like someone who is rooted, I mean like deeply rooted in the gospel, the spiritual disciplines, the goal is not moral behavior, the goal is God himself, Right? We're not trying to be moral people. We're, we are trying to, to relationally connect to the divine life. To, to view God as He is and not as we would project Him to be or the false narratives that we would believe about Him. We are literally trying to abide in the presence of Jesus. So, so the, the goal is totally different. It, it's not external at all. It, for here, it's like, man, God, I just want to be with you. I will do these things because they are the means by which I'm with you. So secondly, there are means of grace. Like I just said, there are means of grace by which God says, hey, as you do these things, then you're interacting with me in a relational way, just like I do things every single day to relationally interact with my wife. I'm cultivating a relationship with her. I'm being with her. Thirdly, um, they, they... you receive power by the Spirit that's fueled by your love for God. Not, not out of a guilt and shame or a white-knuckling it. No, I am actively, uh, I'm, I'm actively passively receiving the love of God. And it's not only transforming my affections and who I am on the inside, but, but then the fruit that I'm beginning to bear is the actual fruit of the Spirit. That when the Spirit is at work in your affections, when He's at work in your heart, when He's at work in your core level beliefs about who God is, then the thing that, can't, the thing that cannot not come out of your life is the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is at work in your affections, then you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. All these things are inner realities that work themselves out. Not external things that you try to fix in. And then lastly, participation with the Spirit um, it, it, who alone has the power to transform. The, the spiritual disciplines are something that we do. We are actively, passively receiving. We are putting ourselves in a position whereby we can listen to God. We can interact with God. We can relationally relate to God. We can receive the love of God. Dallas Willard said, I've been raised in religious circles of very fine people where the emphasis had been exclusively on faithfulness to right beliefs. And, and what he means by that is like Christian orthodoxy, like God is, uh, you know, Jesus is both man and God, these types of things. And, and upon bringing others to profess those beliefs. Now that, of course, is of central importance, but when that process alone is emphasized, the result is a dry and powerless religious life. No matter how sincere, and it leaves a person constantly vulnerable to temptations of all kinds. Therefore, to, to see actual invasions of human life by the presence and the action of God, it greatly encouraged me to believe that the life and promises given in the person of Christ and in scriptures were meant for, for us today. I saw that ordinary individuals who sought the Lord would find Him real. Actually, that He would come to them and convey His reality. Right? If you walk away today with the belief that I'm broken and in order for God to fix me, I need to go be with him, then you got it. We practice the disciplines not to check a box to project ourselves to other people about how we've got it all together. 
You practice the spiritual disciplines because they are a means of grace by which you interact relationally with the one who created you, who sustains you, who loves you, who redeemed you, who is the only one who can transform you. That's how, that is how you become like Christ. You go be with him and you experience the divine life. It's not just some concept that's out there, but it becomes not only um, the thing that's working itself out in your life, it's life itself. If you're ever practicing any kind of external works apart from a relationship, I mean, I'm talking about a relational investment where God is at the center, then don't expect any kind of transformation to take place. God is the only one who can change you. So go be with Him. Right? Believe rightly about Him. Allow Him to, to heal the woundedness, to heal your image of uh, your, your false narratives, your brokenness, your, all of the things um, that are deep down inside. Allow Him to heal that up, to shore it up, to not only um, transform it, to re- redeem it so that you as an image bearer are accurately um, projecting the image of God to a lost and broken world, right? Um, Man, guys, transformation is not um, supposed to be rare, right? This is normative for those of us who are in Christ, but it's also not um, a quick fix, all right? So in 30 years, when you're still working this out, be not discouraged, all right? Be encouraged. Continue to believe the gospel, okay? Hey, uh, where are the yellow sheets? Do we know what did those? Hey, Gordy, you got those yellow sheets back there? Um, hey, it, please, I know we're two minutes over, so I apologize, but please take uh, two to three minutes and just jot down. Um, these are our class evaluations, so you can tell us, um, uh, well, you can tell us how bad, poorly we performed. It's <laughs> awesome. And if we're believing that God is sufficient, then I'm not going to really care. <laughs> but I am going to try to get better. So, uh, yeah, constructive criticism would be great. And then, like I said, uh, Duke and I will be up here. I know that we're just scratching. We, we literally, I mean, dude, we're scratching the surface on stuff. This is like just introductory level stuff. But we'll be here. We'll be, able, we'll be here to talk and, and uh, field y'all's questions. But, hey, thanks for taking... Um, you know, a few hours of your Saturday morning and, and coming to uh, be with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm going to pray. pray for, I'll, I'll pray for you guys. Don't feel like you have to shut your eyes and anything like that, but I'm going to pray over you and just pray uh, Ephesians 3, 17 to 19. You really see... Paul praying on behalf of the church in Ephesus that they would know the height, depth, width, and breadth of, of the love of God. So it wasn't that cognitive, cognition or knowing was enough. It was that they would believe it. They'd heard many times that God loved them, but he's saying, God, will you take that truth that they've heard and that they've, they've understood, and will you bring it to their heart? And so I want to pray that for, you, for all of you as we close. Father, we can't do the work of, of transformation. We are aware of the gospel. Many of us have been around it our entire lives, and we've heard it so many times that we've grown numb 
of hearing it and we've skated over it without even hearing it again. God, would you do a work here in the lives of those who are here this morning, those who've taken time out to be here, of confirming in their heart that they're deeply loved by you. Deeply loved. They look again at their purification from former sins in Christ and remember that God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And with that truth, just revolutionize our view of you and our view of ourselves as we come back to it again and again. And as we speak it to one another for the building up of the body. God, you have to do that work. And we ask you to do that here in Jesus' name.